You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. I'm on the first day today of a two-week family leave from my day job, which I'm so excited about. I was able to take it uh, before Ceci turns one next month, so I'm really excited to just spend all the time with her, all the snuggles. It's really just hurting me to be away from her so much. Frankie is doing some writing up at Space at Writer Farm this week, so Ceci and I are going to the Midwest to visit a bunch of my, my closest girlfriends and their babies, so... Very exciting. Wish me luck. It's going to be our first solo plane ride, so we'll see how it goes. My guest today is Meg Fee. Meg is a beautiful writer who I went to Juilliard with. She was in the year ahead of me in the drama division. And we've been on separate paths since we graduated. She left the city a few years ago to go to grad school for public policy in North Carolina. But we've kept up through social media, and I've just been really interested by how her personal writing on her blog, Post Juilliard, really found a following, and she ended up publishing an ebook of her posts, and then last year, she published her first physical book called Places I Stopped on the Way Home. She's working in New York City right now at the New York Times, and I was really excited to get back together in person and have a deeper conversation. I hope you enjoy the 141st episode of The Compass. from going to the dark side as an artist and within that oh I guess gosh. is Way also implied hard question um what is the dark side for you most often when I say that I figure I just start with the hardest question yeah, and then yeah 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 this we'll is a good interview in technique yeah um I think in the current climate I would say that there are two things that I would consider the dark side, and they probably work in tandem. Um, I think the first thing is that because we're seeing the democratization of information in new and very important ways with the internet, we're just also seeing (laughs) this world in which everyone feels like they have the right to comment on everything. And so 
I think as someone who has written quite openly about their life and who started doing that in 2008 when the world of blogging was like really sort of this wild west of the internet no one knew what to expect and it was like actually a quite sweet place at that time and as that became commercial commercialized and people saw an opportunity um to make money off of it that changed that world and at the same time that was happening it just there was this influx of comments Mm. not just on blogs but you know like websites popped up like there's one called gomi um g-o-m-i and it, it it stands for get off my internets and so there were just these these message boards of people basically commenting on anyone's life anyone who was living their life in any way in on the internet um people had opinions and just the worst the worst possible opinions really really mean stuff um and so i think it's really easy to internalize some of that feedback and to to change how you're going to write in response to that before it ever happens right so i worry the dark side for me is to self-censor in a way that the words don't ever get to the page. That you're predicting criticism and in doing that, moving your own needle further away from sort of your true north. Um, And I think the way to get away from that is to just make a daily practice of writing. Um, I'm saying that out loud. It's like, (laughs) oh, that's something I should be doing. Uh Um, I'm certainly not currently. And then I think the other dark side is in our current political climate to fall down the rabbit hole of, does this matter? Mm. Do, do the arts matter? Does theater matter? Does writing matter? Does any of this matter when there are children in cages at our border as we speak? Does this matter when we see systemic racism or white supremacy at the highest level of our government? And I think it would be easy to say, you know what, no, the arts don't matter. But one, I think that's short-sighted, and I think it lacks courage. And I think actually the arts matter more than ever because that's part of how we make sense of the world in which we live. How we process it. Yeah, exactly. Um, But it, you know, I think the, the dark side is probably just any thought living in a world that stops you from doing the art Mm. whether that's fear or an assumed lack of importance or a future projection of you know here's the thing like we have to do it because doing it matters even if even if very few people show up to see a play, like doing that play matters. The journey of rehearsing that play, the journey of writing it, the journey, like that all matters, even if the end result isn't the accolades we might hope for. Right. Right. Um, so you mentioned trying to do have a daily practice of writing. <laughs> trying <laughs> the, the operative <laughs> word. Was there a time... 
um, like when that criticism first started that you felt for a while that you did go in that direction of um, like changing what you were writing or before you learned how to tune that out and draw yourself back? Yeah, I don't know that I have. I think actually... Or were you able to recognize it as a force you had to resist? I, what I'm embarrassed to say in this moment is I don't think I have tuned it out. I think in some ways now it feels worse than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not quite sure if... I don't think I can tell you why that is. Um, but for... Like I've, I've fallen out of the practice of just showing up daily for my own... Um, you know, ritual of sitting down and exercising that muscle and making sense of the world in that way. Right. Um, no, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit, like, it's, it's like meditation. It's easy to sort of say, like, I know that's really important. I know doing that thing is going to make me a better person, but like, Ugh, those 10 minutes, like I'll get to it tomorrow because <laughs> there are so many other things to do. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, hard because it is so meaningful there's so many things I want to talk about just to catch the listeners up on where Mm -hmm. you are now um Meg and I went to school together at Juilliard Mm -hmm. for acting Mm -hmm. she's been a writer for a long time Mm -hmm. post Juilliard Mm -hmm. and then now you just just graduated with your master's in public policy from Duke Mm -hmm. which is so amazing and had a book published yeah a year ago a year ago so in the midst of when you're in grad school right yeah yeah assuming it was a two-year program it was a two-year program yeah it was purchased probably the march before i started school Mm -hmm. and was published about a year later in may so right after i finished my first year of school right and the the paperback just came out uh i think in july so a month ago and remind me of the title places i stopped on the way home that's right yeah go check that out yeah um so can we talk a little bit about you have all of these interesting transitions (laughs) in your life since school which we Mm -hmm. all do Mm -hmm. in so many different ways but I'm curious when you started writing as a way as you said to like figure things out in your life yeah you know I started writing pretty much immediately after Juilliard um, it wasn't something you did when you were growing up as much. You know, I like did, a, and actually, or... sort of the the irony is like I think I applied to thirteen colleges mm-hmm. um, as I was graduating high school, and most of them were liberal arts schools. Um, one of them was Evansville. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Weeks when I when I like did the you know you do like in. I, I applied in Chicago and it was like at the Palmer House Hilton and mm-hmm. it was I think I applied for North Carolina School of the Arts, Juilliard and Carnegie Mellon and that, then, that's where I auditioned for Juilliard for grad school yeah but for somehow I got linked up with Evansville and applied there at the last minute mm-hmm. but those four schools aside um, it was like the University of Virginia, the University of Texas, Northwest. Actually, I don't think I applied to Northwestern. Right. But like, like those you were sort trying of, to figure out what you wanted to study. Yeah, and, and I do. had gone to a really academically rigorous high school. And, you know, in some ways, I actually really look back and I regret that I didn't have a traditional undergrad experience because I, I really liked my time at Juilliard, but the focus was so 
singular. Yeah. Like it shrunk the world in a way that at 18 I wasn't ready for. Yeah. I'm always incredibly impressed with my classmates who went for undergrad because yeah. I like I studied acting in college, mm-hmm. but I needed that liberal arts yeah. and that time to like yeah. grow up and yeah. study abroad and do all of that stuff. Oh, gosh, yes. I highly if anyone's listening to this and doesn't know, <laughs> I highly recommend yeah, going to going to a conservatory program as a master's student. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I, oh, so yeah, when I got into Juilliard, I was very willful with my parents and basically said, this is where I'm going, like no questions asked. And I was in a really privileged situation where my parents could like, that was okay. Um, but they said the one, uh, can, like the, our one request is that you have to journal while you're there. Um, mom and dad, I know (laughs) because I was, I had been a good writer in school and they said, we want you to keep developing this skill set. And so they were like, we're not going to read what you write, but we want to know that you are in fact, you know, exercising this muscle, keeping this habit, um, which is kind of wild to look back on and go, wait, did like, did we know? And no, we absolutely, there was no, do they keep journals themselves? I'm so curious. I don't think so. No, hmm. no. Um, you know, I think like as a kid, I would sometimes wander up to the one desktop shared computer and see like an open word document that my father mm-hmm. had like written poetry on or, but he, you know, he's a tax attorney. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know how they had the foresight, but I'm really glad that they did. Um, and I kept it up like, not consistently while I was at school. And actually, if I were to go back and look at any of those journals, they are humiliating because it's like, oh my gosh, so-and-so was mean to school to like mean at school to me today or so-and-so like winked at me and didn't that feel great. So it was like when I started blogging in 2008, there was something transformative about the idea that someone else might see that. Right. That was very different. I didn't like journaling, but I found that, oh, there's there might be another set of eyes on this. That changes the way I write in a really important way. Um, and I started writing at a time when I was like really in the throes of depression. And so writing was a way for me to reach for a, like a happier future to sort of put on these rose colored goggles and go, okay, I'm like in the saddest moments of my life, but where can I see joy and where can I commit that joy to paper? So there actually are, I think quite a few studies on the cognitive benefits of writing, particularly for things like depression, um, because it is like meditation or it is like prayer where it's a way for the brain to just sort through what's going on. Um, And one of my favorite things about writing is sometimes I'll see something that I've written that's like, you know, made its way onto some other corner of the internet and I'll read it. And honestly, if my name was not attached to it, I would not know that those were my words. (laughs) Because in many ways it's like acting or it's like an ego-less activity when it's going well. Like you're just not fully conscious Mm. because you're, in the present moment and so it's it's a bit like alchemy it's not like 
I'm not laboring over every word that comes in the editing stage. It's just like a part stream of conscience, part like committing music to paper in the form of words. And so when you started with the blog, like you said, it was kind of before those things had become really monetized the mm-hmm. way they are oh, now. Oh, for sure. Um, was there a point where you did aim for that or tried like made any sort of switch or has it kind of always been organic and like focused on getting your writing out there yeah I would have loved to have made money (laughs) off of it because I was living like you know working in restaurants in New York Mm -hmm. so I could have figured out how to make money I just didn't have that that commercial savviness but I think also at the end of the day is that did not align with who I was in some really fundamental way and I do think like I've always been sort of conscious of like there's so much media that we can consume at any given moment that I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just like pumping like noise that I wasn't pumping pollution into the world and I think sometimes when writing is like listen I'm not like make money how you want to make money but I do think blogs and this is where I'm like oh god what what will someone say if they listen to this and (laughs) judge me for it but blogging because it moved from this very organic place to this very commercial place there was a period of time where the line between like what was being said because it was true because the writer thought it was true and then what was being said because the writer thought they would make money saying it or they had been paid to say a specific thing that line became really blurry in a way that was right. i think dangerous to the people before reading it. there were like established yeah now there now there are like better norms about it and i still think like and... you know like cool is it is what why are you peddling this lipstick to me like is that really important in light of like the you know it's like the whole taylor swift thing from the 2018 midterm elections like it's amazing that she came out a week before the election and said like hey i am gonna vote in the tennessee election this is who i'm voting for and this is why and here's the link to register to vote like that's incredible I would love to see more bloggers using their platform to take a stand yeah. without fear of like, oh, I might lose right. followers, I might lose sponsors. Like, who cares? We're living in a like really tenuous moment in history and the rules are not normal and people should not, like, it's not just about you right now. Yeah. I don't follow a ton of bloggers, but the few like big ones that I do when they do post things about Mm -hmm. current events and things like that, I'm like, okay, good for you. Yeah. And I should say like, there are bloggers out there who are doing it and it is incredible to watch them do it and incredible to build a community around some of these really important conversations. And I just like truly am in awe of them and, and wish that everyone would do that, which maybe is like the bar (laughs) is too high, but it it is odd when you see people staying in their lane Mm, so mm -hmm, committedly, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like this is my lane. I only talk about my kids and this, this other interest Mm -hmm. and that's it. You're just, wow. You have to try so hard to not acknowledge. Yeah, There's like a lack of authenticity to that. And I think people are beginning to sniff 
that out. Like I think, you know, if you look at the data on millennials and how millennials are spending their money and investing their money and wanting to tie it to causes like that, that data is really promising and exciting. We are the generation that wants, um, that wants change on a lot of different fronts. I think millennials get a lot of (laughs) flack and sometimes (laughs) rightly so, but we inherited, uh, quite a few issues. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think I think the data on young people is actually quite promising. Um, can we, just talking about this particular subject, can we kind of skip forward mm-hmm. about why you decided to go back to grad school? Yeah, sure. It all um, seems related. Yeah. <laughs> so I, <laughs> this is going to be. I'm like committing this to to print, I guess, so to speak. <laughs> I. You know, it was, okay, so I, at some point in time, I think I turned 27 and I was like, I can't just keep working in restaurants anymore. Like I... Were you auditioning at that point or had you already no, been like, no, I stopped acting, acting like almost immediately. Okay. So I graduated Juilliard. I was super depressed and I had this really severe eating disorder, um, which like that was deeply intertwined with the, with the depression. Mm. Um, and so I didn't, I couldn't figure out how to reconcile like my health and what I looked like with the industry. And so I just stepped away from it thinking that I would find my way back and I just didn't. Um, And there are times that I regret that, that I like wish I had given it more of a college try or wish I had stuck with it longer, but you know, it, and I moved in and I like did the best that I could on a daily basis and I just never found my way back. Um, yeah. So when I was about 27, I was just tired of working in restaurants and took like an admin job at a finance company. And that led to another executive assistant position at a, another finance company. And then I ended up at a third one and the third one was like the, you know, the place to be and the pay was okay but the perks were great and then had good name recognition and I just remember sitting at that desk and feeling like the Edward Munch painting the scream like Mm -hmm. that that was my internal feeling every day I was like I hate this I hate this so much that I can't breathe yeah um and also, not for nothing, I was not good at it. Like, I'm smart enough to fake my way through it, but I was not a good executive admin. Those jobs are so hard. It was, well, one, it demands multitasking on an incredibly high level. And multitasking is, um, what's the term? It's like, we as human beings actually can't do it's it. It's fundamentally not good for yeah, you. It's it's a maladaptive, so yeah, yeah, it's a maladaptive trait. Like, we shouldn't be able to yeah. do it. It's not healthy. Well, and it also depends on who you're working for. Because I've, in this day job stint I'm in now, I consciously avoided doing, even though they can pay better, like mm-hmm. the executive assistant jobs, because yeah, it's very stressful and anxiety producing for me to like be in charge of someone's schedule yeah. or their email or like be so directly tied mm-hmm. to what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it's a bit like a relationship. If the chemistry is there, it's yeah. like there were... There was a finance company that I absolutely hated the company, but quite liked the guys I was working for. And so the really, like one of them actually wrote um, a letter of recommendation for me for grad school. Mm. So there were like bright spots within it, but 
I think just at this final job, like the amount of the work w- workload was so intense and there was just bad chemistry between me and one of the guys I was working for. And you know then when like you make a few mistakes and so you try even harder to not make mistakes, which just means you make more mistakes. Right. So I think I was there for about eight months and it was my birthday early October and I was sitting in a bar with a friend. I, I said, I'm just not happy. I'm so unhappy and something has to change. And I don't even like looking back now, I think, whoa, what was that like really rapid fire series of events that enabled this to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, but I just decided like, I'm going to quit my job. I had an agent at that time, an interest in a, there was interest in a book. A literary agent. Yeah. A literary agent. There was interest in a book and I had decided I was going to finish writing the book so that we could sell it the whole thing as opposed to like on commission, which is where you basically give a proposal and they give you your advance and you write the rest of it. Um, but I couldn't, I just couldn't go home at the end of this day from the, this job and sit down and write. Like I just didn't have the mental energy. Um, so yeah, I was like, I'm going to quit this job. I'm going to finish writing the book. I'm going to apply to grad school and I'm going to move on. Like something has to change. Um, so I quit my job like a week before the 2016 election. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I look back now and I thank God for my manager at that job at the time. Um, she doesn't work at that company anymore. So I feel like I can say that she was like, you know, you signed a contract saying you'd give us a full month's notice and you're only giving us two weeks. Mm. Um, she was like, so I have to tell you that like you signed that contract, but wink, wink, you can leave. And I was like, okay, if I leave, like what, what does that mean? She basically said, well, you can't come back and work here again. And I was like, okay, I'm okay with that. Like, I don't want to be an executive (laughs) admin and I don't think I'm going into finance. Right. Um, so I, yeah. And you know, those two weeks I think were critical, um, because it just, I don't know. It was like, I actually look back on that time between quitting that job, which was like what, November 2nd and all the grad school applications were due like January 5th. And luckily I had taken the GRE a few years earlier and it lasted for five years. I had taken it thinking I was going to try to get an MFA in writing. Mm. Um, So it was just like this really holy, incredible, scary two-month period in which I I finished writing the book in a month, and then that next month I applied to grad schools. And I applied to Masters of Public Health programs because with my background in the eating disorder, that was, I was like, this is so important, this affects everything, it's so deeply like interwoven with, you know, inequality and like... So I applied to Duke because at the time the dean of the program was this guy named Kelly Brownell, who was like the leading food policy person in the country. Hmm. Um, so I apply, I get in, in that, that April, I go to the accepted students day and I sit down and I'm listening to everyone talk about their interests. And I'm like, <laughs> this is not a public health program. This is a public policy program, which I didn't even know exists. Like I had been out of academia for so long. I didn't even know existed. I was like, what is this thing? (laughs) And I was like, you know, I think this is okay. Like this is a happy accident. This feels good. Hmm. Um, 
So yeah, I showed up to Duke that August and quickly realized there was no food policy in the classroom at all and that Dean Brunell was going to be stepping down after a year. Oh no. Um, but there was this World Food Policy Center there and I was like, this is okay. Like I'm still aiming my arrow at this, so to speak. And then I realized that within that realm, in order to be taken seriously, it was my impression that people wanted you to have a master's of public health. Well, no, people wanted you to be an MD or a PhD. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm really not some sort of science or medical. Yeah, just exactly like that. The highest level of that. Um, But through like a really happy, strange series of accidents, um, the person who was the was leading the food policy center at that time, like we sat down and had coffee and she was like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. This guy who was just working for us, he went to work at IDO and IDO is this company that does design thinking and maybe you should look into that, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so that was in the first semester. In the second semester, Duke offered a class in the policy school called human-centered design. It was like improving the citizen experience through human-centered design. It was the first time they offered the class as a full semester class. It was only open to second year, so I didn't qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, like it was on my radar, I saw it, and not enough second years signed up. So they opened it up to first years. And this guy, Tom Allen, taught the class, and he was the first chief experience officer in the federal government. So he worked for the VA under Obama. Hmm. And he taught this class, and I think within the first few weeks, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this. And I think you'll appreciate that, you know, it's funny, like, now looking for jobs in that field, they'll often say, like, we're looking for people who either studied this explicitly or we're looking for journalists or anthropologists. And the thing that I've gleaned, like the reason they specifically um, name those professions is because those are professions in which people are asking questions yeah. all the time. And I perhaps you know where I'm going with this, but like first year of Juilliard was ask the question, ask the question, ask the question. So for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, like my acting background is specifically about ask the question, just keep asking the question. People and storytelling and Exactly, exactly. And human-centered design is all about creating solutions with empathy for people at the center of it. Um, So it, for me, was this happy marriage of policy school of writing and of acting and so that is where I am now and in some ways I feel incredibly lucky because I look at classmates who graduated from Duke and they're really interested in housing policy or food policy or you know any number of different subjects Mm -hmm. and I came away from policy school with a real love of a specific methodology, a specific lens to look at problems that you could apply to anything. Yeah, exactly. So just to give us like a general idea, would most people coming out of that apply for jobs in a very literal sense, like government jobs, yes, nonprofit, yes, yes, things that can like lobby for policy and the government, things like that. Yeah. To work in politics, um, 
to work for people on the Hill, to work for Planned Parenthood. Um, a lot of people go to work for Deloitte or Booz Allen, um, uh, consulting firms who have spe- you know specific government contracts. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think what else, like the Department of Justice or like the the OMB, the Office of oh, it's like the Office and of Management and Budget. I think <laughs> I should know that. <laughs> there are a lot of acronyms mm-hmm. in in that world, but yes, that yeah. sounds. That's amazing that everything aligned yeah, to bring you is. to that particular place. It, like, is. it sounds fascinating. It it is, and and it's funny because I'm at this job now where I'm doing user research, um, and I can trace back this to like a happy series of events that began in 2012, where like I met a random person, and years later when I said, oh, you know, I'm doing human centered design, she was like, I do human centered design, and she put me in touch with, and so like it's just. It does, I, you know, I, it does feel very much like the stars have aligned in a really deeply meaningful, fulfilling way. That is so inspiring to hear you say. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's taken long enough. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah. And so now, like we were talking right before we started recording, mm-hmm. you're kind of trying to figure out where you want to land next. You finish yeah. in North Carolina. Maybe yeah. stay in New York, maybe go somewhere else. Yeah, I don't know. It depends on who hires me full time. <laughs> yeah, I, the one thing I'm pretty sure day one of policy school, the career office was like, what are your, you know, what are the things you really care about? And I was like, I will not move back to New York. And, you know, <laughs> right after graduating. Yeah, came like back. Oh, two weeks later, I'm like, okay, here I am. And eight weeks has become four months. I'm like, is four months going to, like, is there a future here? Well, I, I know that's up in the air for you right now, but how how did the change in scenery when you went to North Carolina affect you as a person and as a writer, like your mental health? Yeah. Um, location, location is so yeah, influential. Yeah, well, I had an amazing <laughs> apartment, level. which was awesome. Right. That's um, the difference. Yeah, I had a one-bedroom apartment that like the bedroom was huge the living room was big and it had like a mini dining room which Mm. I used as a yoga room um and and Durham is just so green and that's so fun and I ended up again it was like a happy accident a friend said they were going to be living on near one campus versus the one we were going to school on and I was like yeah cool and she had done some legwork on potential places to live and I just went through down it and like chose the second place and put a deposit down on an apartment um and it ended up being really lucky because I didn't have a car so I it was close to one campus I could take the shuttle to the other that took like 20 minutes but it was close enough that I could walk downtown so it was just really um when I got there I was like this is amazing I'm never ever leaving Mm. and I think after about a year I thought, okay, I miss a city. I'm not saying I miss New York City, but I miss, like, I 
I couldn't find a good dry cleaner and I couldn't find someone to like fix my, you know, when you're, those soles of your shoes wear out. I was like, who here can do this? So I missed, I missed like a bit of hustle and bustle, but yeah. And in terms of writing, like that change of scenery was really critical. And I also think spending two years thinking about the world and problems like in a totally new way like I I don't feel like I've actually gotten back to the kind of writing I've done before school because I spent so much time strict strictly doing like policy writing but that policy writing I think is going to be super helpful when I do go back to writing for pleasure so to speak um because it tightened up my writing It, it was like okay it needs to be as efficient and like pointed and effective as possible Mm. um and how bizarre and I think in the end probably really valuable that these two years were these two years in history (laughs) in our country like right after Trump got elected yeah I tell people now that when like I have just enough information to be dangerous in a conversation which is really fun Mm. like I've just an end that sometimes I can use that power for bad because like I've got certain buzzwords that I can say and I know that the person across from me may not be able to challenge me on it and I'm like yeah um and so I try but I do try to like I think going to policy school made me much more rigorous about like you know if we're gonna call Trump a racist and I I'm pretty sure we can at this point like let's what empirical data can we look at to back that up right um, so it made me what, more... Gr- what things are we calling him out on? Yeah. And let's not have it be his tie. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like what concrete Exactly. Things. But I do think, like, when I think about policy school, I'm like, if I took away only two things, it's that one, our country was built upon, uh, like, really racist policies. That yeah. racism is so deeply baked in. Um like I, you know, to if you look just at the housing policy in this country, and like there is a real case to be made for reparations, just in terms of like how home ownership, like the the cost of homes, has accrued, uh, or the price of homes that you sell them for, has accrued over the last eighty, sixty to eighty years, and who was able to access those homes sixty to eighty years ago, and who wasn't. Right. Um, and how the inequality that we're seeing now really is so, like, it's just so deeply embedded into what's been what's been happening since our country was founded. Um, and I think the second thing is that, like, early childhood development is, is a place where we need to be investing serious money as a country. Um, because from, you know, like, 25th week of in in the woman's body to or I should say like in the individual's body that's carrying the baby mm-hmm. um to two years that's just massive and all there's just so much much research coming out that backs that up and if we do seriously want to get at systemic inequality and opportunity for like actual you know giving everyone equal opportunity that is a place where we could be investing money to actually give people um, 
to level the playing field in some way yeah. because currently it's not it's just not level it just and it also just seems like something that there's no interest in investing in as someone who's just gone through having a baby yeah and looking at the way most other countries yeah. support a family or a woman mm-hmm. who's trying to have a baby and how there's just zero resources across the board here mm-hmm for maternity leave for mm-hmm. healthcare, it's just absolutely insane so do you know what i don't know if i can say this but i'm going to because <laughs> you know like you know we should call do you know what duke's maternity leave policy is no take a guess um let's see is it just that you get the time off and they don't have to pay you that do you get your job back they it's after you get it's unpaid three leave. weeks three weeks paid leave okay after you take three weeks of your own oh my god yeah can you imagine being at a, university, our, like at a university where the best like some of the best and brightest minds oh in the god. world are saying hey we we know that we have to invest in this we right. know that breastfeeding is important that is we insane. know that spending like we know that it's good for the mother's health we know it's good for the father's health we know it's good for the baby we know it yeah <laughs> it's just it's really mind-boggling well and I considering that like my whole long-term plan with getting these day jobs was for the maternity Mm -hmm. leave and then the language around when I did get it the language of was it the gratefulness or like the you're you're so lucky I'm so lucky like having to like bow yourself down Mm. to feel grateful for that time Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> there's just something so disgusting to me yeah. about that yeah just and I think disgusting. one of the other things I learned from policy school is that a lot of times this money exists like we have the money to support these policies we're just not putting it towards these policies um, like Elizabeth Warren has proposed a two cent wealth tax and the plan is from my understanding is that for every dollar over 50 million dollars of income so you have to have like passed the 50 million dollar income mark oh my God. for every dollar over that two cents will be taken out and those two cents will pay for universal pre-k and universal health care and there would still be a billion dollars left over. Oh my God. And when you, like someone said to me recently, we're not sh- quite sure if those numbers add up. And so, you know, I'd have to do more research myself. Right. Um, but when I think about like, if that is true, the fact that it doesn't already exist is mind numbing. And the fact that so many people would fight, you know, hand over claw. Yeah. Whatever that phrase is. <laughs> yeah. Hand over fist. There's, um... To keep it from happening. Yeah, Let's there's see. this guy, uh... Have you ever read anything by Anand Giriharadas? I haven't. He is amazing. Um, one of the questions we've been asking people in our user research on the project that I'm working on now is, like, who do you trust on the internet? Like, are there two or three people you follow that you really love, that you look to see what their opinions are? And for me, he is mm. one of those people. Um, and he wrote a book this past year called Winner Takes All. And it's about the idea that philanthropy exists for wealthy people. Like people will give their money away only insofar as it allows them to consolidate their own power. 
So like it's all well and good that Zuckerberg is giving X amount of dollars away, but in doing that, it lets him off the hook from a lot of taxes and allows him one like more power and more control about where that money goes. Um, so I think, you know, earlier this summer at a specific university, um, do you remember the story? There was a commencement speaker who basically said, everyone who's graduating today, I'm paying off your student loan debt. And it was, you know, it made yeah. the rounds on the internet. It was so incredible. And I was like, what is, what does Anand have to say about this? And he was like, yeah, this is great. This is a big step forward, except this guy voted against this tax, like closing this tax loophole, which would allow many, many more students beyond these in this audience to reap the benefits of that same kind of, um, so I think, yeah, it's really interesting how people with money have more power and that, you know, it's important to call them out on that. This is not a revolutionary thought that I'm saying. It's just something that, like, is only beginning to crystallize in my mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that whole world of philanthropy has so many well-intentioned ideas. Well, you know, that last last, um, finance firm I worked for, some of those guys, and, like, let's be honest, it was all guys, would stand around and talk about giving to one specific organization and it felt very much like who will give more it wasn't about like giving to this organization because they believed in it it was like giving to the organization and giving more than the person next to them because then they'd have more power and like more social capital Yeah. yeah and so it was very much like hey you guys like you have all of this information and we're in new york city where there is real need for you to go into different different communities and like give your time i think at this point like look it's great for people to donate money but i'd like to see that coupled with like taking some time out of your job or out of your day to just like to teach a skill to to give kindness to give empathy to in some real tangible way yeah especially now that so much of life is online and exactly exactly anonymous yeah Hmm. yeah um, can we talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of um, when you self-published your book yeah. and then when you got it published? Yeah. Just in case anyone else out there sure. has a similar project or... Yeah, so I... Like resources you found helpful or... Yeah. Whatever. I... How did that all happen? I had been writing the blog for so long um, that I was like, you know what? I just want to put a few of these blog posts together and sell it for some money. <laughs> Um, and it was like a digital yeah yeah I mean it was a it was a pdf it was a downloaded pdf and actually it's funny I don't even remember I can't tell you like did I save it as a pdf on my desktop and just upload it (laughs) like maybe that's that must have been what I did and then did people pay you for it or you just made it available for people paid me for it what I did was I put it like a link to buy on my website which was a Squarespace website and I think I used Stripe um, which takes Mm. like a small commission from every purchase but I yeah it must have been like a a digital download the thing is I can't tell you how I did it (laughs) looking back on it now I'm like oh if I could do it all again 
I do like, you know, I like, I like the PDFs where it's like, you see the page turn, right. like it's gotten, like this was as like low tech as it possibly could be. But honestly, I was so proud of it. And it was such a cool experience to actually see, because I saw every purchase that came through and, oh, it was just like the day that I put it up for the first time, like seeing people, oh, it was just, I was like, oh my God, I'm making money and this is so <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. And so I published it in, on my own in October and that December, right before Christmas, someone reached out to me via Twitter that I knew sort of peripherally and said, Hey, like I work for, um, a publisher in the UK and I've shown this to some of my colleagues and I'm just wondering, uh, if, if the world rights are still available. And because that happened, I reached out to my best friend who is a writer who at that point had had published one book and now is like on her, you know, she just signed a four book deal. She's incredible. Oh my God. Um, but she had a literary agent. And so she was like, you know what, let me put you in touch with Ella. So she introduced us over email and Ella said like, I, you know, I, I love this. I'd like to sign you as an author. And we together made the decision that I would, the, the ebook was only like 12,000 words. And what I was aiming for with the book was something closer to 50,000. Um, so we made the decision together that I would finish writing it and that she would then shop that full version. Um, so yeah, the, uh, that, so I like didn't write anything for about eight months. Uh, so let's see if that happened like October, November, December, that was like nearly a year later in that November was when I quit my job and finished writing it. Um, and then I think she started shopping it in January or maybe February and it sold sometime that March. So it was like a really easy, wonderful process that felt really, really lucky. Um, I think the, the part of the process that felt less good was like actually the book coming out into the world. Yeah. yeah. And many, many people talk about this, that like, there's a weird hangover after a book comes out and that you know like is it exactly the book I wanted to publish well that's what I was wondering like was there an odd experience with like the editing process when you have other people editor was amazing so she was incredible I cannot say enough good things about her or does it just feel so concrete that you start second guessing? I think it feels so concrete that yeah, you like start you said, second that guessing. The exact book that yeah, I and it's not like it's never going to be. Right. Um, but it and feels I think so finished. It feels so finished yeah. in a way that like writing online never did. It felt so finished and so it's also that experience of when you write you know, I'm sure with acting you've had this experience like you do the performance and like doing that performance belongs to you but the person receiving it like it's their interpretation of your performance belongs to them and actually what their interpretation is is none of your business and so you do have to cede total control Mm -hmm. and I think that's a weird like because I wrote about really personal moments in my life I'm like oh god these don't belong to me anymore like I've given them an I've given them away. I've given away this my interpretation of this series of events, and now everyone else has their own interpretation of my interpretation, and that doesn't be, those interpretations don't belong to me. Um, 
yeah, there was a like a weird bittersweetness about the whole experience that a part of me is like, well, now I just have to write a second book to like clear erase, the air. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> erase that. Like let's, let's, uh, you know, put a new memory on top of this other right. one. Yeah. Are there any lessons that you've learned in the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Could be small or large. <sighs> Sometimes I think the reason I am like on the earth in this lifetime, in this body is just like, because my soul or whatever you want to call it needs to learn how to sit with uncertainty. So hard. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. I certainly have not learned that lesson, but I'm like knee deep in it always and probably will be for the rest of my life. And I'm sort of proud of my willingness to, to commit to that learning. Um, yeah, is there anything else I've learned in the last few years? I mean, that's a great one. Yeah, I don't know. Life is hard. Life, life is hard no matter what you do. It's always going to be hard. And that doesn't make it not incredible. How has your family taken in your writing and your career path? changes oh gosh <laughs> so I think the whole reason I'm in this world in this life da, 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 is to teach my parents to sit with uncertainty <laughs> I know you mentioned that your dad was a tax lawyer what's yeah. your mom's background is um, there any she, like, creatives in the family or? she worked in marketing for many years mm-hmm. it's like a really great math you know she's great with math but but very you know I've the older I've gotten and the more twists and turns I've had in my career you know, quotation marks, I've come to understand that everything is creative because creativity is really about, you know, pattern seeking and then identifying where the pattern falls apart. Like that's what we're all doing at any moment. Right. Um, so yeah, I think both of my parents were deeply creative in their own ways. Uh, how have they responded? You know, I think, I think they're really proud of me. I think they're really proud of the book. I think I definitely like put them through the ringer for a long time. Um, and I think it is weird for them to know that like this book does exist in the world and does chronicle some very intimate things. Um, and they'd probably prefer that some of their friends don't know all those things, but I think they've done a really good job of taking it in stride. We don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I'm curious if there was anything when you were recovering from your eating disorder, Mm -hmm. resources or things that you found ended up really helping with your recovery? Yeah, therapy. Therapy, (laughs) yes. Um, (laughs) Like I think everyone should go to therapy no matter how well you are in the same way that everyone should exercise because it's good for the body. Like Mm therapy is good for the brain. Um, Yeah, I got really, really lucky and my mom actually found a therapist who was the head of the eating and weight disorders program at Mount Sinai. So I walked in, like I was 23 years old, walked in, and within the first 10 minutes, I was like, oh yeah, this is my guy. Because he was able to say, like, here's what's happening in your brain right now. And right. this is not your fault. You are not You're a failure. Yeah, you are not broken in some fundamental way. It's more like your brain is doing this very specific thing because you're hungry. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, resources. I mean, I, because I was dealing with binge eating disorder, I found that the 
sort of common, like the way people talk about dieting is just so, so, so screwy. And actually like thinking about empirical research, there is no, all the research says like diets do not work. They just don't work. And yet that is the thing that's pushed again and again. And actually there's been some really encouraging research in the past few years that says a weight's per, a person's weight is not actually an indicator of their health like in terms of, oh, they're going to die sooner or they're more likely to have a heart attack. Actually, the best indicator is, are you exercising? Are you eating fruits and vegetables? And if you're doing those things, actually your weight doesn't matter that much. Mm. Um, So I think we live in a society that has this really dangerous idea that one certain body type is valuable and all all the other body types aren't valuable. So all of sort of the common wisdom around dieting, around weight loss, just, it made me worse. Like the more I tried to do those things, the more I binged. So I like had to do as much research as I could to figure out what was happening in my body. Why was it happening? What was the science of it? And what could I do to recover? And by recover, I don't mean like, even when I was at Juilliard, a lot of people said to me, oh, well, this is just something you're going to have to live with forever. And I was, that made me so angry. And so I felt very strongly like, if that is the only truth that has ever before existed, I refuse to accept it. Like, I will go in search of a new truth because I will not deal with this for the rest of my life. Yeah, that, and I was also really fortunate. Yeah, and I was really fortunate too in that I, I, I didn't love my eating disorder. It made me feel like shit all of the time. Like, and I talk about this in the book, there are like three years of my life I do not remember Mm. because I was so sad and so unwell. Like, and I remember people in my life at that time saying to me like, well, at least you have, at least you have your health. And I was like, that is the one thing I do not have. Mm. Um, But yeah, a ton of research, a research on like, you know, why in the 1970s did the American government say fat in food is really bad for us? Right. Oh, actually there was a really interesting struggle between two scientists and one person said fat was bad and the other person said sugar was bad. And hey, you know, the American government put their eggs in the basket of fat is bad. Well, what happens when you take fat out of a product? You put sugar there because that's the only way, like it tastes good and it remains on the shelves. Um, And so sort of like unpacking the science as much as it exists, because understanding what's happening in the gut and microbiome is like very hard to study. And how it's tied to your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very complicated. And I'm actually like, the research is still very much in transition. Like there, you know, we don't know everything yet. We're still figuring it out. So for me, eating became about hooking into a belief system around food that was bigger than myself and bigger than my weight. And then it also became about a belief system in what, in which what I looked like didn't matter at all. Like it, it didn't matter who cares, um, which is, you know, hard (laughs) coming from an acting background (laughs) and living in the world in which we live, in which we've assumed that thin is beauty and we've assumed that beauty equals value um but yeah I just I went in search of of science I love this 
theme through your life of just seeking more knowledge and yeah. research. It seems to be so important to you, and it, I love it. Yeah, and I think that, look, like, I went to Juilliard and then Duke. That is really, really fortunate and really lucky, but I do think there is so there are so many ways to get knowledge, which is different than an education. Yes. And I think it's dangerous that we live in this world. I'm saying this a lot, but I do think it's dangerous <laughs> that we live in this world where we think a person has to have a degree in order to do something um, because they're like with the democratization of information, there are tons of ways to get knowledge and information now and people should be encouraged to seek out an education on their own terms Mm -hmm. and according to their own means and they should never be penalized for what that looks like. Yeah. I was home educated up until mm. college and oh, I wow. remember I had some t-shirt from some like home education conference or something that said, I don't remember who said the quote, but the quote was, um, schooling should not be construed with education. Mm. I always love that. <laughs> My, I'm staying in a friend's apartment right now in Sunnyside and she was schooled at home until... Oh, yeah college and she's the smartest person I know (laughs) she's the person who I'm like I'll say you know where does the term cliffhanger come from like I think it was Charles Dickens in the Pickwick papers and she'll be like no it was so and so like (laughs) the amount of knowledge in her brain is just staggering to me I I definitely have some blind spots in Mm. my education but it definitely it taught me how to be curious and mm. how to learn like which how is to seek like out that the is the point of any education which is kind actually of what you're really about. yeah like I know how to find the information yeah. or how to learn yeah you know I and it was it. really interesting going to Duke because being in that public policy program having an acting background was really undervalued having any kind of arts background I would say was really mm. um they underestimated me and that was a real shame because I was like, man, acting really is about being curious. And totally that, like, I can learn how to write a research paper, no problem. But like, learning to be curious, learning to like on a deep, yeah, deep, sort of a cellular level, level, yeah. 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 I mean, that's that's a priceless mm. skill. So there's two questions I usually ask at the end, unless okay. unless there's something that you would really like to talk about that I have not touched on. I don't think so, no. Okay. We've gotten covered a lot of things. If you do find yourself going to that dark side, that uninspired or depressed mm-hmm. place, are there any tangible things that you go back to again and again, like books that you reread or places you go or oh. music or hmm. something like that? Yes. I love Tiny Beautiful Things mm-hmm. by Cheryl Strayed, and I love a book called Leaping, okay. L-E-A-P-I-N-G, by Brian Doyle. Okay. It's, it, it's got like leaping colon blah, 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 other mysteries and da, da, da. And it's a series of essays um, that is just so beautiful. Um, and he has, he starts the book with an essay on writing and why he writes, and it is Oh, just so so remarkable it's gutting I will um, request that book at the library yeah today. absolutely so I would say those books and then you know I'm saying this out loud because I'm like oh I should start thinking about this again now that I've graduated now that I have like a job and income 
it's just like a, a that making the whatever art you do a part of your daily ritual so that it is like a habit so that you know you like the bones of that habit exist even when this dark voice comes yeah. comes to the party so yeah. to speak um and then the last thing i wanted to ask was if you've seen anything recently of any art form that you want to recommend i don't know if you've had time you've been oh so busy oh my gosh flea bag we just finished season two. Yeah. Oh my the God. first season gut like gutted me. I thought the first season was unbelievable. And so my friends in the UK, obviously they got the second season before we did. And all the reviews were like, this is unbelievable. Everyone else should go home. Like this is TV. <laughs> and so when I watched it the first time, I was like, yeah, it was good. But like, I loved the first season mm-hmm. so much that I was like, it was fine. And then I, then there was just this feeling of like, it was stuck under my skin. Um, and so I've probably watched the second season now three times. And we just finished it oh. in the last couple of days. And I've been, I really have been thinking about it a lot. Yeah. She, Phoebe Waller-Ridge is, is a force of nature. Um, and then she is the creator of Killing Eve, too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. she definitely wrote um, the whole first season of Killing Eve. And I think it's good. Oh, yeah, she's... Yeah, I'm like, how does someone's mind work like that? How does she exist in the world? Um, I'm glad, I'm really glad that she does. I'm <laughs> jealous of her talents, for sure. Um, Have you seen any plays since you've been back in the city? No. <laughs> oh my gosh, no. I'm working on paying off student debt. <laughs> Not to say like that theater should absolutely be paid for and so like invest in that. Um, no, you know, I've been out of that world for so long that... Do you have any recommendations? Oh my goodness. There's a lot of things that I want to see right now. I'm trying to think what's playing that I've already seen that I can recommend. We want to see. We have a couple of friends mm-hmm. who've been on the podcast who are in this... Um, retelling of three sisters called oh. moscow 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 that's oh, at cool. mcc right now that i really want to see as soon as we turn off the podcast i'll remember things to okay tell you. okay cool <laughs> <laughs> anyway okay flea bag yeah flea bag yeah this is not recent but the there is a show on netflix called river which is like a six episode series it's like the whole thing right what what do they call that limited limited Mm. series which is you know typical bbc it's like about a detective inspector um and his partner and it's just one of the most beautiful it's just storytelling perfection Mm. yeah it's about a a team you know two partners and following a mystery and there's just i think it like does a really incredible job of depicting how much joy there can be even in moments of like real despair thank you so much for doing yeah, this yeah thanks for having me i really appreciate it of course I'm so excited. thank you for listening to the compass podcast 
If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of The Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.